In part one and part two of this series, I examined the murders at Colorado Springs, Monmouth, Illinois, Ellsworth and Paola in Kansas, and finally Villisca, Iowa, the five incidents most often thought to be the work of the same killer. In this part, I'll look at three non-canonical murders that might be some more of this killer's handiwork, or might just be coincidentally similar. The book The Man from the Train contains an exhaustive list of axe murders from around the time, but in my opinion, many of those are too different for me to consider them the work of the same killer. The three that follow, one in Texas and two from the Pacific Northwest, I believe bear the hallmarks of being committed by the same offender. I'm Andrew Gable, and this is the third part of Death Rides the Rails. Arthur Matchin once wrote that strange things are lost and forgotten in obscure corners of the newspaper. Welcome to Forgotten Darkness, a podcast that will aim to prove that that statement is true. first thing you notice when researching the murder of Lewis Castaway is that, for a black man in the South in the early 1900s, particularly one who was married to a white woman, there's a distinct lack of the racism that plagued news reports about blacks at the time. This is perhaps a testament to how much Castaway bore an excellent reputation for honesty and industry, according to the sheriff investigating the crime perpetrated in March of 1911. In San Antonio, Texas, a neighborhood woman, Mrs. C.H. Ellis, also backed this up, stating that he was, quote, respected by both blacks and whites. Originally born in Louisiana in 1859, Louis Cassaway's early life is little known until he married a divorced woman named Elizabeth Castillo. Elizabeth's divorce was filed on grounds of desertion. Her husband, Samuel Lane, was employed as a cattle driver, and getting some money from her, he left on a trip, and simply neglected to come back. A lawyer had advised Cassaway against marrying a white woman, as it was illegal for a black man to do so at the time. Not to be deterred, the two simply went to Mexico to get married at C.P. Diaz, which seems to have simply been a railway stop located in the suburbs of Piedras Negras. According to the same neighbor quoted earlier, a short time after Cassaway and his wife returned to San Antonio from Mexico, he got into some sort of trouble, but it proved the charges against him, which were trivial, could not be backed up by evidence. The two bought a house at 417 North Olive Street, next door to Lewis's sister, wife of a prominent black lawyer named R.A. Campbell. Lewis took a job as a janitor at a black school, the Grant School. He had apparently also previously worked as a janitor at City Hall and for a time as bailiff for the courthouse. 
but it was at the Grant School he had been employed at the time of his death. On the morning of March 21st, the principal of the, of the school called the Campbell's house. The phone was answered by a boarder at the house, a woman named Bessie Drake. The principal, H.M. Tarver, inquired as to why Cassaway wasn't at work yet and why the doors of the school were still locked. Students couldn't get to class. The whole scenario, nearly exactly like that which would lead to the discovery of William E. Dawson in Monmouth, Illinois, a few months later. Bessie left the house and walked over to the Cassaways. She walked around the house a few times, knocking on the door and tapping on a few of the windows. Receiving no response to her calls, she went back to the Campbells and informed them. R.A. Campbell went over to check it out, to much the same response as Bessie Drake had received. All the windows were covered as well. Campbell pried a screen off one of the windows and a pillow that had been placed in it tumbled out. This allowed him to glance in and find a horrible scene. He ran back over to his house and called the police. The police certainly didn't skimp on their response. Sheriff John Tobin, Deputy Sheriff Charles Stevens, a constable trainer and several other beat cops, as well as Captain Newman of the detectives and most of the city detectives, were dispatched. Coroner Ben Fisk also attended. Finding the back door unlocked, not locked as Drake and Campbell had thought, some have theorized that this might indicate that the door was merely barred, or something otherwise placed in it to impede its opening. The police made their way into the blood-spattered home, finding the bodies of Louis and three-year-old Louise Cassaway in one room, and those of Elizabeth, six-year-old Josie, and five-month-old Alfred in another. All press reports and the death certificate refer to the three-year-old as Louise. However, census records indicate the name Ruby, and that is also the that's also the name she's buried under. A bloody axe, with the hair of Elizabeth Cassaway still stuck to its blade, leaned against the bed in which she and the two of the children were found. The axe was believed to have been taken from the Cassaway's woodshed. Coroner Fisk thought it likely that Lewis and Louise were killed first, followed by Elizabeth and the other children. Some valuables, including a gold watch and some money, were found lying about the home and none of the drawers were tampered with which indicated that robbery was not the motive. At the back of the house was found a single set of footprints leading out of the house. As it had been dry most of the day before, beginning to rain overnight at about 11.30 p.m., this indicated to the investigators that whatever time the offender may have entered, the killer had left the cassaway home after that time. Questioning of neighbors indicated that no one had heard anything. One of the houses next to the Cassaways was vacant, and it was possible that the killer had laid in wait there. Sheriff Tobin was familiar with the Cassaways. Emerging from the house, he said, quote, How a human being could commit such a crime is beyond all comprehension. He went on to state of Elizabeth, I know her. She some years ago was employed at my home as a seamstress. Her maiden name was Castello and I have information that she has relatives living in Coleman and San Angelo. I also know Cassaway, he having served as bailiff of the grand jury some time ago. He went on, Cassaway bore an excellent reputation for honesty and industry, and, as far as I knew, did not have an enemy. His domestic affairs, as far as I can learn, ran smoothly. 
he and his family living happily together. Within a few days, the house had acquired a reputation befitting the monstrous crime which occurred there. During the day, the property was besieged with onlookers, peeping in through the windows to gawk at the gory remnants of the crimes. Most of the furniture and blood-stained bedding had been removed and disposed of, but there were still evidences of the crime in the home, of course. But, come nightfall, gawkers shied away, and pedestrians altered their path to avoid the house. An account in the San Antonio Express on March 25th stated that one evening, some brave visitors approached the home when, quote, a blue light appeared suddenly to leap from the windows of the house. It vanished, but a moment later, it shone forth again. A chopping sound was heard all the while. Around the same time, the police began to subscribe to the idea that the castaways were murdered by a white man, but they did not expound on exactly why they had arrived at that conclusion. Police also had difficulty finding relatives of Elizabeth Cassaway. Nearly a week later, there was finally a bit of a breakthrough when they heard from Sheriff W.T. Jackman of Hayes County on March 26th. Jackman wrote a lengthy letter detailing what was known by his office about the Castello family. The mother had died sometime previous to 1885, when the father of the family had moved to the county, married a local widow, and at some point soon after, Elizabeth moved out. Here she and Sam Lane were married. After Sam Lane abandoned her, he lived in Coryell County for a time, then moved to Colorado, then to Chickasha in Indian Territory, the old name for what is now Oklahoma. He married a woman there, apparently left her, and the last the sheriff knew, he was still living in Chickasha. A brother of Sam's named Abe lived in Coleman City, Texas. On March 31st, two brothers of Elizabeth's were tracked down by police in, all, in both Austin and Llano. Sheriff Tobin was less than optimistic about this turn of events, however, stating that, quote, I do, not, I do not expect to secure any information from them which will clear up this mystery. The police now believe that the killer was an anti, was anti-miscegenation, someone against the mixing of the races. This theory was backed up a few months later. The account from the San Antonio Express of this discovery contained a few other pieces of evidence which hadn't made it into the accounts of the morning of March 21st. The Cassaways had a dog. By itself, not a significant piece of information, but of the string of murders in which the same killer is suspected, only the showmans in Ellsworth, Kansas also had a dog. And like theirs, the killer of the Cassaways was apparently able to bypass the dog entirely. All this in what was apparently a fairly small house. The killer had lighted an oil lamp in the house. There was no mention of whether the chimney of the lamp had been removed, as in the other crimes. In addition, there was something else present in the home, something which the time frame made the Express refer to only obliquely, quote, an act adding insult to injury heaped upon the family after all were cold in death. What this was, we can only guess, but recall the similar statements made about most of the other crimes. An arrest was made that night as well, that of a black man known to have threatened Lewis Cassaway's life years before. Things were, looking, were initially looking hopeful, as the shoes of the man fit the footprints found outside the house. But it was noted that most of the police and the sheriff didn't place much stock in the arrest. 
Eventually, the man was released. Here it also transpired that on the night of the murder, Castaway had purchased a bucket of beer from a nearby saloon. Odd indeed, since as far as anyone knew, neither he nor Elizabeth were drinkers. Does this imply that someone else had been in the home that evening? Again, we find another parallel with a later murder. Recall the implications that Rowan and Anna Hudson had received a visitor shortly before their deaths. After the release of the March 31st suspect, who was never even named, the case went silent for two months. On May 30th, a letter was received addressed to Sheriff Tobin, as well as to R.A. Campbell, the lawyer who was Louis Cassaway's brother-in-law. If legitimate, it possibly confirmed the police theory of an anti-miscegenist. I understand that you are all in search of the man who killed the Lewis Cassaway family. Well, I am the man, and am going to give you trouble in catching me, and whenever you run across me, there will be trouble in your hands. I am no Negro. I am a full-blood white man, and again, I never wrote this. I had it done by a man about 300 miles from here, and I am in the city of San Antonio now. So catch me if you can, and there will be trouble on your hands, because I am in a dangerous place, and I mean to kill the first one that tackled me about this matter. So you all can pop your whip and get busy. I am ready to die at any time, so look out. I had a right to kill that family, and if you ever catch me, I will explain it to you. On August 9th, another arrest was made. That of an elderly relative, or called a relative in the press, and I suppose he was, though not by blood, of Elizabeth's a native of San Antonio named William McWilliams. William was 70, and his being a suspect in an axe murder may seem ludicrous to you. It does to me as well. I know a 70-year-old in 1911 Texas was probably a bit more brawny than most 70-year-olds I know, but still. William McWilliams was also not really a relative of Elizabeth's, but was actually the foster son of one of her aunts or cousins. But there was no real evidence to speak of warning his arrest, and McWilliams had been picked up only because there was a perceived similarity between his handwriting and that on the letter addressed above. He was held for some time, but eventually prosecution was dropped, and McWilliams was freed. After that, the case went cold, and cold it remains to this day. Nearly three months after the murder of the Cassaway family, another massacre took place in Ardenwald, a suburb of Portland, Oregon. One night in June, banker C.W. Matthews was, he testified later in court, awakened by the barking of his dogs. The time was approximately 12.45. Not seeing anything outside, Matthews went back to bed. The next day, June 9th, Matthews awoke at 6 a.m. and went across the street to get his cow, which was tethered near a house belonging to William Hill. On the way back to his house, he yelled into the Hill's cabin that it was time to get up. He usually gave Hill, a gas fitter, a ride to work in the morning. When it was time for him to leave at 7 a.m., however, the Hills still weren't up and about. Matthews told his wife and left for work. 
Mrs. Matthews went over to the house and pushed the door, pushed the back door open to see the bloody body of Dorothy Rintoul. Not much else is known about the entry to the scene, but the findings in the house are not in dispute. William and Ruth Hill, and two children of Ruth's from a previous marriage, marriage, five-year-old Dorothy and eight-year-old Philip Rintoul, were all dead. The bodies were all covered with bedclothes, and the windows draped with clothing from the house, or with bedclothes. There was evidence that someone had washed up after the murder, and later testimony by the coroner indicated that William Hill and Philip Rintoul had the worst wounds. An axe was discarded at the foot of Dorothy's bed, which was later suspected to be one missing from the yard of J.T. Delk, who lived some distance away from the hills. In the words of the Oregon State Journal, reporting in the by now familiar, vaguely descriptive style, quote, The position of the bodies of Mrs. Hill and the little girl, together with a cursory examination by Dr. Roy S. Stearns, would indicate that the crimes must have been the work of a degenerate of the most repulsive type. And then, rather less, rather less obliquely, quote, pending an autopsy, it is impossible to state with any certainty that the murderer is a necrophile, but indications point strongly to such a fact. This suspicion was supposedly confirmed the next day. Once Ruth's relatives were contacted, it soon transpired that Mrs. Hill had been in Portland the day previous to see her brother and father, who were attorneys at the firm of Cowing and Cowing. She seemed to be quite agitated, but the two were engaged with other work and unable to meet with her. What exactly she was nervous about is unknown, but it's tempting to wonder whether that had anything to do with the murder that night. Reports surfaced the next day that at about 10 p.m. on June 8th, a mysterious mulatto man had been seen lurking around the Ardenwald station, accosting women and asking directions to Portland. The man seemed reluctant to step fully into the light, but always hung back in the shadows. He eventually moved off towards the southwest in the direction of Oswego. Police searched the suburbs around Oswego and nearly every train car bound that way, but they did not find the mystery man. One wonders if this is the man seen by another man, uh, man named John Morick lurking in the shadows at the Ardenwald station, rather than Nathan B. Harvey, which the lawyers would later attempt to prove. There are no other accounts I could find of whether this man was ever apprehended. Across the street from the Hills Cottage, to the south, was a wooded expanse known as the Scott Estate, or Scott's Woods. The woods were a common campsite of any number of vagrants, and it was theorized early on that the killer could have been one of these, or possibly that he had fled there after the murders to seek refuge among the hobos living there. Early on the morning of June 15th, milkman Gus Obist was attacked near the hill cottage by a wild man who came out of the woods and beat him badly. Now, before any listeners hear wild man and think, ooh, Bigfoot, no, this is wild man in the sense of a guy who lives in the woods. A pile of newspapers where the man slept was found in the brush. An Ardenwald woman living near where Obist was attacked told a sheriff's deputy named Phillips that she had seen the wild man several times, that he always emerged from the woods at around 2 or 3 a.m., but that she had occasionally seen him during the day as well. 
On June 19th, a search was launched near Rhododendron for another wild man who asked residents for directions to a trail into eastern Oregon. But Rhododendron is far to the east in the Cascades and not too far from Mount Hood. So it's unclear why authorities believe that th that tramp had anything to do with the hill slaying. The case subsided from active investigation for several months until, in December 1911, a local character named Nathan B. Harvey was arrested for having committed the crimes. Harvey was a forester and owned a house in the vicinity of the hills. At some point in that interval, the county had contracted a private detective named L.L. L. Levings. As in Villisca with James Wilkerson, this proved to be a mistake. Part of Leving's contract it stipulated unwisely, I might add, that his payment would include a bonus for a conviction. And so in December, Harvey was arrested. For what reason isn't known, though it came to light that he had been being watched since June, as had all the Hill's neighbors for that matter. Detective Leving's described him thus, Harvey is the most cordially hated man in the neighborhood of Milwaukee and the most feared, he has a violent temper and violent emotions and impulses. He would do a good turn on an impulse, and then just as quickly would he do a bad turn. We know of scores of women to whom he has made vile proposals. During the summer, he would hawk his cherries and fruits about the streets of Portland. His habit was to ask women at their homes if their husbands were nearby. If they said no, he nearly always would make some sort of vile proposal. We know of one woman he assaulted and whose life he threatened when she told him that she would tell her husband. Our investigation showed that he had insulted almost every woman in the neighborhood of his home. Wondering why he had not been killed by some angered husband or father, we found that nearly all of the men were afraid of him. They know of his violent temper and impulses. They know he would not stop at murder. He was not a gunman, but he had often assaulted neighbors with stones and clubs. It was said that Harvey sold some of his property and was planning to leave Oregon and that this was why the arrest occurred. But Detective Levings and Sheriff Mass both denied that this was the reason. In any case, upon his arrest, Harvey provided a statement to the aforementioned Oregon Daily Journal detailing his movements of the day. I started for Portland from Ardenwald at about 2 o'clock on the afternoon of the 7th of June and went uptown to collect some bills. I first went to the Corbett building, where there was a man who had promised to pay me some money that day. I found him absent from his office, so took a car to Mount Tabor, where I went over a business transaction with the manager of Mount Tabor Nursery, T.V. Sulman. On leaving Mount Tabor, I was delayed by slow car service, and didn't arrive at the junction point at Grand Avenue in Hawthorne Avenue until dark. I went immediately to the home of a friend, Mrs. George Miller, who lives just in the rear of the United States Laundry, which is on Grand Avenue. With Mrs. Miller and others, I witnessed the Evening Rose Festival Parade on Grand Avenue. Then I took a car for the west side and went to the Woodman of the World Building on 10th Street. No, I am not a woodman now. I was once a member, but I dropped out. I am an odd fellow, however. I got to the Oregon City car just too late to catch the 10.30 o'clock car. I waited there until the 11.30 o'clock car arrived, 
in the meantime talking to several persons whom I know and whose names I have given the authorities. I got off the car at Ardenwald Station at about 11.25 or 11.30 o'clock p.m. and walked home without a stop. No, I did not notice a light on in the hill cabin, nor did I see an axe standing in front of the delt cabin. I went home and went to bed without turning from the road. I can sum up my plea in a nutshell. I am innocent of any wrongdoing. I did not kill Mr. Hill or Mrs. Hill or the two children. I knew nothing about the murder till the two officers told me of it. During her life, I spoke to Mrs. Hill only once. That was possibly three weeks or possibly three days before the murder. I do not remember. I was driving along the main road when she called to me from a side road. I am Mrs. Hill, a neighbor, she said. Do you know where I can buy a cow? She walked beside my rig for several hundred feet until I came to my gate, where I turned in. We talked about nothing but prospects for buying a good milk cow. I knew Hill slightly. I do not think I knew either of the Hill children. I did not know who Mrs. Hill was and had never seen her before that day she stopped me on the road and asked me about buying a cow. In response to this last, I assume the questioning that took place about him be his being a woodsman had to do with the fact that, by the time of this questioning, the Burnham Wayne murders in Colorado Springs had occurred, and the woodsmen were a background element of that investigation. The case, I use the word case only loosely, against Nathan Harvey was a complete railroad of a man who, if the descriptions are accurate, was undoubtedly a bit of a creep but whether he was a murderer, much less a necrophile, as the killer of the hills apparently was, is doubtful. There was a fixation among investigators, from almost as soon as the hills had been slain, that their killer was likely the same person who had murdered a five-year-old girl named Barbara Holtzman three months earlier, on March 14th. The girl was strangled to death and found lying in a room at a boarding house in Portland. The Renner, who was apparently the killer gone. If this had taken place a decade and a half later, I would be tempted to say this was the work of serial killer Earl Leonard Nelson, as it sounds very similar to some of the murders that he committed, and he did commit many murder, several murders in Portland. But this was a decade and a half before, so... A man named Leon Lachard was jailed on suspicion of the Holtzman killing, but Bertha Nelson, the landlady of the house in which the body was found, said upon seeing him that Lachard was definitely not the man. She said that Harvey somewhat resembled the mysterious lodger, but she wouldn't testify in court about that as she wasn't entirely sure. Personally, looking back on the case with a modern understanding of killers, I'm uncertain whether there should really have even been any reason to believe the same offender was responsible for these two crimes. Sheriff Mass was convinced, convinced of his guilt, saying, quote, Harvey displays a knowledge of the crime and of all the circumstances connected with it that could not have been known to anyone but the murderer. There are a hundred little facts in connection with the case that we have never spoken of and that no one knows of but Levings, myself, and Harvey. There were inconsistencies between the timeline Harvey provided in his statement and with that advanced in court. For example, Harvey says he arrived in Ardenwald at 11.30, 
but several witnesses testified that they had seen Harvey riding the train that arrived in Ardenwald at 12.30. While that's a discrepancy, this alternative timeline was used to calculate that, when walking at a fairly brisk pace, Harvey would have approached the Delk house at about 12.40, taken the axe, then arrived at the hills a few minutes later, all of which fit the contention that definitive proof placed the murder of the family between 12.45 and 12.50. Most likely, they were referring to the testimony of Edith DePark, a sister of Ruth Hill, who said she found a clock that had stopped at 12.52, lying in a corner of the room behind a chair. This would seem to be a decent decent piece of evidence were it not for a coroner's statement that the bodies were still fairly warm on arrival, and in his estimation the time of death couldn't have been much earlier than 3 or 4 a.m. There was an implication that Nathan Harvey and his brother Daniel had poisoned their father in Iowa. Then it was said that one morning Nathan's mother was murdered with an axe, just like the hills, and Dan was shot in the back of the head. This done, Nathan took possession of the property in Ardenwald. A good story, but just that. Obviously, the implication in this was that was that Nathan murdered his mother and then shot his brother to cover up the crime, and then he had done to get the house. But the Salem Statesman Journal of June 12, 1890 refutes this by noting that Dan Harvey had sold the property to a group of lawyers, before shooting his mother and then committing suicide. So, the mother didn't die the way that was presented in court, the brother didn't die the way that was presented in court, nor did Nathan Harvey acquire property the way that was presented in court. Then, there is the story of how Charles Wilson, a brother of Nathan's wife, murdered a young girl named Mamie Welsh practically on the Harvey property. Dan Harvey, it was said, visited Wilson in jail, and obtained a confession from him. Now, Wilson's murder of this young girl did indeed happen where they said it did. But not only do I question the relevance of this story, because it's not even a relative of Harvey's at all, unless they were trying to imply that Nathan had committed the murder and managed to get Wilson to confess. But Mamie Welsh was murdered in 1892, which leads me to wonder how exactly Dan Harvey obtained this confession from him when he had already been dead for two years. Much was also made of the so-called damning evidence that Harvey had obtained the services of two Portland lawyers only five days after the Hill murders, quote, in case I'm arrested. Great, but the story wasn't as damning as it was made out as both lawyers in question also made it clear that they only talked to Harvey and he never formally contracted them. Furthermore, by five days after the murder, he was already being watched by the police and neighbors were muttering about their suspicions of his guilt. It was a preemptive consultation, nothing more since Harvey returned a few days later and told the lawyers the harassment had eased and their services would not be necessary after all. By December 26th, Nathan Harvey's case was dismissed, the judge saying that the state failed to make any case of any substance against him. It was planned to rearrest him and charge him with the murder of Dorothy Rintoul, the daughter, but I could find no record of whether this second arrest was ever pursued or whether the case was left to vanish into the ether. A man named Ed Ramsey, a.k.a. Fred Alexander, a.k.a. William Flynn, 
was arrested on June 18, 1911. A vagrant who lived near the hills in Scott's woods, he was a pedophile who was convicted of luring young boys into the woods on more than one occasion. In 1915, an affidavit was signed by a couple from Ardenwald that they had seen a man walking quickly away from the hills home muttering to himself. They swore that the man was Ed Ramsey, but their affidavit described a man who looked like the 1915 version of Ramsey, heavyset and grizzled, whereas in 1911, Ramsey was thinner and much less wild-looking. As far as I'm aware, Ramsey was never formally charged with the Hill's killings. Another never-do-well named William Riggin, convicted of robbery several times and who was arrested for the shooting of a man named William Booth in 1917, confessed while in prison to the Hill's murders as well. He... Charles Brown, later determined to be an alias of a convict named Charlie Daniels, and William Flynn, alias of Ed Ramsey, planned it out. Brown and Flynn took an axe from the woodshed and murdered the family while Riggin stood guard. A second confession made by Riggin stated that it was only he and Flynn who had committed the murders. Then in 1918, he changed his confession again, and again it was back to all three of the men. These confessions were apparently false, not in the least because the axe hadn't come from the hill's woodshed, but from a neighbor's house. Riggin was still convicted of the Booth murder charge, though he was never connected to the Ardenwald. Almost exactly a month after the Ardenwald murders, a 25-year-old Missouri native named Archie Coble and his wife, 18-year-old Nettie Coble, were slain on the night of July 10, 1911 in their house at Rainier, Washington. A neighbor woman, Mrs. W.E. McNett, had discovered the bodies, both of whom were bludgeoned and the axe used to do the deed, left lying in the home. The axe had been removed from Coble's woodpile. Not much information on the murders themselves or on the state of the home exists, though it is known that the bodies were covered in the style of the other Midwest slangs, and also that robbery was not a mode of his money and other valuables were left in the home. No documentation exists, not that I've seen anyway, on whether the windows were covered. Rumors circulated that Nettie Coble had been raped either before or after death, but these were refuted by the coroner's findings. The killings were believed to have taken place sometime before midnight, as an alarm Archie had set for that time hadn't yet gone off. Footprints were found at the back of the house. From almost as soon as it occurred, a connection was seen to the killings in Oregon, and the first suspect was in custody only hours after the murder was discovered. John McQueen, a rancher, had been in and out of the asylum seven times. He had been seen in Rainier the night of the murders, and had been overheard swearing to kill Frank Bartlett and his wife, it was assumed that he had simply broken into the wrong house and murdered the Cobles by mistake. He was soon apprehended near his Olympia ranch. However, McQueen was released the same day after his alibi checked out. Another man named Pierce was also questioned, and a miller who failed to report for work the morning after the Coble murders was also sought. In mid-July, Sheriff Mass of Multnomah County at Oregon, where Ardenwald is located, 
came to Rainier in the company of Dr. G.A. Cathy and his brother C.C. Cathy. The Cathys claimed to have traced a blood trail from the Cobles' cabin to rooms rented by a man named Swan Peterson, a Scandinavian who spoke only passable English. A case was attempted to be constructed linking Peterson to the hill slangs, as well, of course, to the Barbara Holdsman murder, which was for some reason thought to be the same killer, but the case fell apart when Peterson managed to prove that he hadn't even been in the Portland area at the time of those crimes. On July 25th, a railroad worker named James Wilson confessed to the murder of the Cobles, but he offered no real explanation other than an irresistible urge. Well, he kind of confessed. He said he had no memory of having done it, but he was pretty sure that he did do it. However, Wilson could not be tied to the Ardenwald murders, and so that part of the case fell apart. It transpired that when McQueen was in custody, Wilson had tried to stir public feeling enough to get him lynched, and he later attempted to do the same with Swan Peterson. In November, Wilson was convicted of second-degree murder and given 10 to 20 years in prison. And that's the end of this episode. A list of sources consulted for this episode can be found in the show description. If you have a question, a comment, or know a lesser-known story that you'd like to see covered, leave a comment on the podcast page, post it to our Facebook page at Forgotten Darkness Podcast, or send it to our email at ForgottenDarkness77 at gmail.com. We're also on Twitter at Forgotten Darkness Podcast. And so... Until next episode, this is Andrew, signing off. <laughs>